Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. The Hebrew Bible contains different kinds of wisdom literature. For example, wise sayings and proverbs typically express general principles, providing guidance for what to do when the world is working the way it's supposed to. However, Job deals with just the opposite issue. What happens when you do everything right and still face extraordinary loss and suffering? In this teaching, we'll work through the major themes in Job to uncover the overall message of the book. We'll see how Job refutes the simplistic idea of karma, so commonly assumed by so many today. In the end, we'll see that actually our world is complicated, but God is here through it all. Here now is episode 295, Job, It's Complicated. Proverbs is a book of conventional wisdom. It's the way the world is supposed to work. And the book I would like to talk about next is Job. And Job is essentially what you do when the wheels fall off and the world's not working the way it's supposed to work. And I love how the Bible contains both side by side. The book of Proverbs and Psalms has a lot of conventional wisdom. And then you have Job and Ecclesiastes, some, some sort of radical wisdom for when the world is not working the way it's supposed to. And then we also have the rest of the Bible, right? We have the New Testament, teaches us a lot. So, but for, for right now, I'd like to focus on Job. So please take your Bible and go to Job chapter 1, verse 1. I'm, I'm looking to not just dip our toes in this morning into the book of Job. I want to go below water. I want to go all the way in, completely submerged. In fact, I would like to cover the entire book of Job with you in the next 45 minutes. Right. Bless my heart. It's about a chapter a minute. No big deal, right? Uh, so that's, that's my goal. And the reason why I do that is I, I did a lot of work trying to do big picture stuff, trying to like synthesize and, and figure out the, the main message. And then I, I kind of realized that once I got close enough to the, the pit that is Job, it just sucked me in. And I couldn't really get out, so I'm still stuck in Job, and I think you have to sort of experience the frustration of Job to appreciate the wisdom of the book of Job. So that's, that's our plan. Uh, but generally speaking, if you work hard in life, you will be prosperous. Generally speaking, if you stay faithful to your spouse, you'll have a good marriage. Generally speaking, if you treat the elderly with respect, you will be treated with respect when you're elderly. You know, these are the way the world is supposed to work, and that's what's in the book of Proverbs. And that's assumed when we get to the book of Job, that they already know that, and they're already doing that. But then the question comes in, but what happens when it doesn't work? So let's look at Job chapter 1, verse 1, which says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What a description, wouldn't you say? Oh, that that would be said of me when I die. Would you like that to be said of you? That you, would be, that you are a blameless and upright person who feared God and turned away from... I mean, hello, I'll take that as an epitaph on my grave. Wouldn't you like that? This guy is a powerhouse, morally. He has excellent character, integrity, and he's phenomenally wealthy as well. 
He's a total package. He's got thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys. He's got lots of servants. Seven sons. I only have four. I feel like such a loser. Seven sons and three daughters. The one uh, white whale in my wife and I's marriage. You know, a daughter. We tried. And, you know, Job had three. No problem. And so uh, he's the greatest of all the people in the East, it says. He's so pious, he's so righteous that he offers preventive sacrifices for his children. You know, he's like, well, maybe they sin, so I'll, I'll sacrifice for them too. That's the kind of father he is. It says, God says, in verse 8, God says of Job that there is no one like him in all the earth. God's bragging about Job. That's how amazing Job is. He's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. But we actually learn more about Job in the book. We know that he instructed many, that he upheld the one who was stumbling, that he had a seat in the city square. You don't get a seat in the city square unless other people recognize that you have something worthwhile to say. When the aged saw Job, they rose and stood. He delivered the poor and fatherless. He was the eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. What a great guy, huh? taking care of those who are in need around him. He defended the victim. People listened to his counsel. And he sat as chief and lived as a king. And when others suffered, he comforted them. He comforted those who were in mourning. But then, as many of you know who have read the book of Job, he lost everything in a day. He lost all his oxen and donkeys. He lost his sheep and his camels. He lost all his kids at once. Ten kids in the same house The house collapsed during a storm. Everybody died. Can you imagine the agony of this man? He's lost everything. Look at verse 20. Job chapter 1, verse 20. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What a response. Oh, that that would be my response when I suffer. Even just a a fraction of what he just went through. That I would bow on the ground and that I would say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the Lord. You know, my life stinks, but blessed be the Lord. That's what he did. Really great initial response. But then it gets worse. He gets covered all over his body. He loses his health. He gets sores all over his body. From, it says from the, the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, he has sores. And so he takes a piece of broken pottery and he scrapes his skin. And he scrapes those boils and those sores. He scrapes them off and he sits in ashes. Job is at rock bottom. Except for one thing. He kept his wife. A wife is a good thing, right? Look at chapter 2. Why do you think that's funny? Chapter 2, verse 9. Because <laughs> he knows what the wife said. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, are you with me, 2-9? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Come on, Job, just give it up. Not the best advice to give your husband, or if you're a husband, to give your wife. Just curse God and die. All right, just give up, buddy. <laughs> But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So then the friends come. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. And it says, When they saw him from a distance, 
They did not recognize him. Job was so jacked up. His, his physical appearance was so distorted. He had shaved. He had scraped. He had been in ashes. He's wearing sackcloth instead of his luxurious robes. They're like, they didn't even know it was him. When they saw him, they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Verse 13, and they sat with him on the ground. Kindest thing they ever did. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. Also the kindest thing they ever did. They, 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 and and this, is, this is the way it is. I mean, if you've ever been with somebody in utter agony, somebody who's, who's grieving, a lot of times talk is cheap. And you could come up with any, any kind of one-liner you want or this little poem or that song, but just be there. Sometimes that's all you can do. That's all, all that they need you to do is just be there, do the little things, you know, get them food, make sure they have a blanket, stay warm, you know, just take care of their basic... And that's what they did. They were there for Job. They sat there with him for seven days and seven nights, and they didn't talk. No one spoke a word, for they saw his suffering was very great. And then Job starts to speak. That's chapter 3. Job starts to speak. He pipes up, and he's just, he's just letting it pour out. He says, oh, God, God... I wish I was never born. Actually, you know what? I wish I was, I was a stillborn child. That's what he says. I wish I had just gone from the womb to the tomb. That's it. No life. My life is so miserable, so vexing. I wish I was just dead at birth. And so then we go through three rounds. That's Eliphaz there. That's Eliphaz. And uh, what we've got is three rounds where... Within each of the rounds, we have three speakers. And so, first up, we have Eliphaz. Doesn't look all that friendly. And what does Eliphaz have to say? Remember, look at this, chapter 4, verse 7. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Chapter 4, verse 7. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So that's what Eliphaz says. He says, look, you know, the innocent don't suffer, Job. The innocent don't perish. He's not directly saying Job's not innocent, but Job is suffering. Um, and Job doesn't engage at all. Instead, here's Job. Job's down there. Instead, uh, Job, Job is like, he's pouring out his, his, his feeling that God is shooting arrows at him, poisonous arrows. And, and he's like a target that God is shooting at. And he wishes again for death. So then, now it's Bildad's turn. And so, Bildad's whole point is, if you're blameless, Job, just hold on. God will take care of you. God will reward you. And we look at chapter 8. You've got to kind of keep up with me in the Bible here. I'm not going to have everything on the screen. Chapter 8, verse 5, Bildad says, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. He, he believes, look, you know, you just need to cry out to God. You need to pray harder. You know, God's going to turn this thing around. Instead, Job is disheartened. He knows he can't contend with God. God's too wise. God's too powerful. He wishes for an arbiter. He, he actually says, there's no arbiter between us. I wish I had somebody go between me and God because God is doing all this stuff to me and I'm over here suffering and I don't understand what's going on and I'm too, I'm too puny to just like yell at God. And so he's wishing for an arbiter here. He dare not lift his head up. So then Zophar gets up, and Zophar is seriously annoyed at this point. 
Zophar is annoyed, and uh, he says, should your babble silence men, Job? You know, th- these guys are getting sensitive because Job is talking about God, and he's, and he's saying that God's doing all this bad stuff to him. And so Z- Zophar is, uh, in our modern lingo, triggered here. He's triggered, and uh, he, he says, should your babble silence men? Um, God, he actually says to him, God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves, Job. So Job has to respond, and he, he says sarcastically, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. You guys are obviously the wisest people in all the world. I mean, once you die, that's it for wisdom. Goodbye, chokmah. And then Job goes on, and he says, do you think you're better than I am? I am blameless, but yet I'm a laughingstock, he says. And then he calls them worthless physicians. And then he says, I will argue my ways to his face. He wants to argue to God. He thinks his friends are totally and completely useless. Sometimes friends are like that. And so he challenges God directly in chapter 13. He challenges God. He says, let me speak and you reply to me. <laughs> That's bold. That's bold, Job. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Can you imagine saying that to God? God, where, where are my iniquities? Where are my sins? Show me my iniquities and my sins. And so round one ends with frustration. Nobody connects in the dialogue. Everyone's frustrated. So let's go to round two. Round two, Eliphaz pipes up. He says, both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. In other words, who do you think you are, Job, to talk to us like this? Are you the first man who was born? Eliphaz asks him. What do, you, what do you know that we don't know? He asks him. Look at chapter 16. For 15 verses, Eliphaz goes on and he states a principle. And it's the key principle to understand the book of Job. It's called the, the law of retributive justice. Okay? So I have that for you here. And this, I, I'm taking this from another place in the book, from chapter 36. But it, it states it very well. And essentially, everybody believes this except for Job. And uh, it, it goes, this is a, one way of saying it. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive. You hear that? He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. That's simple, right? The wicked are punished. The afflicted are given their right. Uh, verse 7, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. Look, if you are, if you are a wicked person, you're living a wicked lifestyle, then what's going to happen? God's going to punish you. That's the law of retributive justice, right? You get what you give. And it, it goes two ways, as far as this, this way of thinking about justice goes. It goes two ways. So look, if you're, if you're having a bad life, obviously you're wicked. And then on the flip side, if you're righteous, God's going to make you rich. He's going to give you good health. You ever hear of any Christians preaching that message today? And then on the flip side of it, oh, you're a rich person? I'll be your friend. I mean, you're obviously blessed by God. So that's the assumption of the people that Job is talking to, of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Any Zophars in the room today? I don't know if I caught one of those on the name tag. Uh, Yeah, I don't think so. So basically this guy says, look, we're older than you, you don't know anything, and this is how the universe works. You're suffering, Job. What does that tell us? And so Job replies, 
Miserable comforters are you all. Like, aren't you guys supposed to be helping me? I've lost everything, and you come here, and what do you do? Miserable comforters are you all, he says. Job says, if the roles were reversed, he would do just what they're doing and shake his head at them. Look at chapter 16, verse 7. This is, this is one of the strongest statements he makes. Chapter 16, verse 7, Job says, Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in His wrath and hated me. He has gnashed His teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Verse 10, men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He's talking about God. Job says, look, I had a good life, and God destroyed it. Verse 12 again, he seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. He slashed open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. Verse 15. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin, and I have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and my eyelids in deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Can you feel it? Can you feel Job's pain? See, see how he's calling out God? I mean, he's not just saying, well, God, you, you really could have helped a little more. No, he's saying, you made me your target. You're shooting your arrows. You sliced me open. My kidneys are out, and, and you poured my gall upon the ground. You're like a warrior that not only knocked me down, but then trampled me over while you're going on in battle. Bildad doesn't like this very much. And he says, why are we stupid in your sight? You tear yourself in your anger, Job. He says, the light of the wicked is put out. He says, that the wicked have no posterity or progeny. Job just lost all his kids. Job had just lost all his kids. Job has no posterity. Job has no progeny. Job has no offsprings, no descendants at this point. This is about as insensitive kind of a statement you could possibly make to somebody. So Job says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? God is, and then again, he goes right back. God's persecuting me. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I've lost everything because of God's wrath. I call out for hope or for help, but there's no justice. So then Zophar says, the wicked sometimes enjoy blessing. If the wicked swallows down riches, but then he will vomit them up again. Once again, expressing this idea of retributive justice. Look at chapter 20. Look at chapter 20. Zophar believes that the wicked can have prosperity, but only temporarily. Only temporarily, because eventually it's, got, it's like you eat too much. It's got to come back. It's got to go somewhere. Chapter 20, verse 4. Do you not know this from old? Since man was placed on the earth, that exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment, though his height mount up to the heavens, the wicked person, his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen will say, where is he? 
Implication, if Job's right and God is punishing him as if he's a wicked person, then he is a wicked person. <laughs> Look, if the shoe fits, buddy, wear it. And so Job replies, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? At this point, Job completely challenges the whole system of, th- of retributive justice. He says that the wicked often have good lives. The wicked die in peace, Job says. How often will you comfort me with empty nothings, he says to them. There is nothing left of your answers but fal- falsehood. Like Basically, he says, you guys have no clue. You're clueless. You appear wise. You appear like these ancient sages with your beards and uh, your biblical garb, right? But you should speak falsehood. You have no idea what you're talking about. Like, even your basic principle of justice is wrong. So we end round two in frustration as well. But there's a third round. There's a third round. There's always a third round, right? So Eliphaz gets another shot at it. This is his last speech. It's in uh, chapter 22. If you could turn there, I'm going to read a little bit from it. 22, verse 6, we're going to look at. But Eliphaz says, Is not your evil abundant? Is not your evil abundant, Job? Agree with God and be at peace. Whereas up until now, statements about the wicked have been hypothetical, abstract, philosophical. At this point in the dialogue, Eliphaz takes that finger out, points it right in Job's face, and says to him, Your evil is abundant, Job. You sinned, you're lying, and if you don't repent, you deserve this. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. These are the accusations Eliphaz makes of Job. He says, For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. Job, you're wicked. You've done these evil things. You've taken away from the poor. Verse 7, you have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. Verse 9, you have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you. Job, you deserve everything that God has done to you. Look at verse 21. Agree with God, Job. Job, repent. Repent, Job. Confess. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. See, he really is his friend. Maybe he has good motives. He wants Job to be, to be right, but he really believes that Job is a filthy, rotten, disgusting sinner. Because look at all the bad things that have happened to him. Verse 26, For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him, and He will hear you, and you will pay your vows. So Job is utterly frustrated. He says, let me argue my case before God. You guys are so useless. Like, now you're accusing me of ripping off widows. Come on! Let me just talk to God. You guys, you guys suck. You know, I don't, I don't even want to have anything to say to you. And then he goes on. He says, where can I find God? Look over at chapter 24. Where can I find God? Let me contend with Him. He's terrified of God, but he's not silenced. He puts his finger on the problem of evil, and he asks the question, why doesn't God defend the poor? Look at 24, verse 5. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. Think about that for a moment. 
The poor are out there, they're working, they're trying to get what they need to survive. And the only way they can get food is to go to some really wealthy plantation owner and glean on the outskirts of it to get enough food just to survive. Look at verse 7. They lie all night naked without clothing and they have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. Verse 10, they go about naked, without clothing, hungry, they carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil, they tread the winepress, but suffer thirst. God, why is your world screwed up? Job asks. This is his question. You know, these other guys are saying, look, if you're, if you, if you're righteous, if you do the right thing, if you do what God asks you to do, you're going to be rich. Isn't that the conventional wisdom? You work hard, you wake up early, you, you be honest, you do what you can, and over time, what happens? You accumulate wealth. Job says, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's how God runs it. I don't think yet that's how God runs the world. I think the poor suffer. That's what Job says. Job is, Job is taking those scales I showed you before and just totally flipping them upside down. He's like, everything you guys think is just totally wrong. <laughs> Look at verse 12. From out of the city of the dying, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. Where are you, God? Why don't you stand up for the poor? Why don't you stand up for the unjust? So uh, then Bildad gets his turn. This is going to be his last speech. And it's very short. Look at chapter 25, verse 5. Bildad wants to know how humanity can possibly judge God. Job. You're just a human. How can you judge God? Chapter 25, verse 5, he says, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in God's eyes. How much less man, who is a what? Maggot. The moon is not bright in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot? And the son of man, who is a worm. Bildad, if you look in your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible, you see this is a very short chapter. It's only six lines. It's a short chapter. It's the shortest chapter in the book of Job. And Job responds, not with six verses, but with six thunderous chapters to Bildad. It's like Job is, is, is in a pressure cooker, and it's, it's been boiling and, and heating up, and he just blows up in 161 verses straight. The other ones are totally silent. It's a response that's 26 times longer than Bildad's <laughs> statement. And Job just goes nuts. He blusters and he accuses God hard. Look at chapter 27, verse 2. Chapter 27, verse 2. Job says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Look at this guy. I mean, look, he's lost everything. He lost all his money, all his investments for the future, all his servants, his kids, everything. And he says, you know what? The only thing I've got is my integrity. I know that I was righteous. I'm not giving that up, guys. 
I'm not giving it up. You know, God, you want to have this out? Let's do it. Let's do it, God. I'm ready. I'm righteous. Would you do that? I mean, it's just, to me, it's very impressive. This is an impressive man, but I love how complicated he is, and I love how honest he is. So many of us, we go through suffering, and, and we, so many, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. You ask Job how he's doing? Wait for six chapters, okay? <laughs> and it's going to be amazing Hebrew poetry, too. God does punish the wicked, he says. Job recognizes that God does punish the wicked, but he also recognizes that sometimes he doesn't punish the wicked. Where can wisdom be found, he asks. Look at chapter 28, verse 28. Here's a classic wisdom saying, right in the midst of this subversive book. 28, 28, And he said to, to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And then in chapter 29, he goes through his old life and how he had it all and he was respected and he had money and he was well liked. And then in chapter 30, he says, now they just laugh at me. People hate him. People avoid him. Job comes down and they walk on the other side. They spit when they see him. Chapter 30, verse 17. Look at the state of this man. Chapter 30, verse 17. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. I kind of felt like that a little last night. I don't know about the rest of you brothers and sisters in here. Sometimes the YMCA mattress racks my bones. Uh, but, uh, you know, Job, Job, Job's in this sickness. His, his, he's in this anguish of spirit. And he says, the night racks my bones, and the pain gnaws me. Takes no rest. So he's, got, he's in constant physical, emotional, spiritual agony. Look at verse 30, chapter 30, verse 30. He says, God persecutes him. He says, my skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. And then, in his climactic ending of this great speech, he goes through eight hypothetical scenarios, eight typical sins that anybody would do. And he, and he, and he lists them all out. And he says, if I've ever done this, if I've ever done that, if I've ever done something over here, then he calls down a curse upon himself. If I've done any of these things, go ahead. Let the curse fall on my head. That's how he ends his speech. I didn't do it. <laughs> well, Zophar doesn't get a third speech. I know some of you were sad. You were really curious what Zophar was going to say. Uh, but we got a new guy in the mix. Elihu shows up. Apparently he's been there the whole time. And uh, look at chapter, <laughs> chapter 32. Look, look at chapter 32. You see, he's a little younger. He doesn't have as much gray in his beard. He doesn't have any gray in his beard. All right, look at chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. So Elihu is really furious. He's ready to, he's ready to cut it loose and, and, and just let those words fly, right? Look at verse 3. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And you know what the first thing he says is? Hey, look, God punishes the wicked. He restates the law of retributive justice. And he urges Job to repent. And he adds that God can use suffering, this is new, 
God can use suffering to bring repentance. But that's not really Elihu's major issue. So he's a traditionalist in this, in the, in this sense. But his major problem with Job is Job's God talk. He says that Job multiplies his words against God. Look at chapter 36, verse 22. Verse 22. He says, Behold, God is exalted in his power, who is a teacher like him. Elihu asked Job this question. You know, God is exalted. Who's a teacher like God? You know, Job, verse 23. Who has prescribed for him his way? Who told God how to run the universe, Job? Who, who is, who's prescribed? Who, is, who has commanded God to do things the way he does them? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Verse 26. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. The number of God's years is unsearchable. Job doesn't understand lightning or rain or clouds. How can he judge God? That's one of Elihu's main points. This, he gets into the lightning, how God has lightning and he knows lightning and he can use lightning. Some good chapters there in the, in the, in the late 30s. At this point, where we're at here, the wisdom of the sages is spent, is, is done. We've gone three rounds. We had Eliphaz. We had Bildad. We had Zophar. Every one of them took different turns. Job took different turns. There, there was a lot of miscommunication, a lot of finger, like subtle, like, well, I know, I, the, the wicked usually perish, Job. You know, usually the wicked suffer. You know, we got from there to, repent! You've done it, Job! <laughs> right? So this is, this is a conversation that lasted a long time. There were many turns. And now Elihu pipes up. He says his piece. And Job doesn't even, he doesn't even respond. He doesn't even respond. Uh, because someone else comes into the picture. Someone else comes into the picture. Look at chapter 38. God shows up. God shows up. Job has been calling for God, right? He's been saying, oh God, you've done all these bad things to me. Why don't you explain yourself? So God actually does show up. He shows up in a whirlwind, and he answers Job at a whirlwind. And at this moment, they, they must have had open mouths, like, God's here. All right, we've just been talking about him the whole time. Here we go. Verse 2. Who is this? This is, what, this is God's opening line. Who is this? Talking to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, Job, and you make it known to me. All right, Job, you want to do this? Let's do it. I'm God. <laughs> I'm going to ask you some questions. You know how many he asked him? Fifty. Fifty questions. No less than fifty questions. It depends on how you slice it up, but no less than fifty questions. Here's, here's what it sounds like. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, where were you standing, curiously? Like when I, when I brought space into existence, created light, like were you just like over behind Pluto? Because that's not even a planet, all right? Verse 5, who determined his measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God goes on to ask Job about creation. He says, why is it that the ocean only comes so far and stops right where the land is? He asks him about light, sun, snow, hail, precipitation, constellations, the origin of human wisdom. Job, where did humans get wisdom from? Where did it all start? And then he goes to animals. God peppers him with questions. He says, 
You know, he asked him about, the, about lions. Job, explain the lion for a moment. He asked him about ravens, goats. He says, Job, how do the goats give birth on the mountains? Do you know that, Job? And then he asked him about donkeys and wild oxes and ostriches and horses and the hawk and the eagle. And then God pauses. Look at chapter 40. God pauses. Look at chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. I'm just a little guy. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I'm not done with you yet. Dress for action. Look at verse 7. Dress for action like a man, Job. Job, stand up. I got some more for you. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you, Job, may be right? And then he gives them a couple of exhibits. Exhibit A, the behemoth. Some sort of land beast. And God says, could you even kill a behemoth, Job? And then he says, exhibit B, the Leviathan, some sort of sea creature. And God says to him, look at the Leviathan, right? For me, this is like a plaything. It's like a rubber ducky in a bathtub for God. And yet, if you got even close, it would slaughter you in a second, Job. The behemoth, the Leviathan, you know, scholars argue what animal it refers to or if it, if it refers to some other mythological creature from their literature. Or we, don't, no, we don't really know. But that's not really the point. The point is, however great and, and dangerous these creatures are, and powerful and untamable, they're nothing to God. And yet Job would have no chance. Look at chapter 42. Last chapter of the book. Told you I'd get there. Okay. We didn't read every verse, okay? But I did get to chapter 42, so that's good. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, this is at the end of God asking all these other questions. I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God asked to Job. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Basically Job says, you're right, I don't get it. I don't get it, God. I am not smart enough to figure this out. You are, because you know where the wild goats give birth on the mountains. I haven't even really put much time into that thought. <laughs> God could play with the Leviathan in the bathtub. Job, if he got even near it, one little swipe of his tail and he would drown. Job realizes, he's like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not qualified to figure out how you run the universe. I'm just not qualified. There's a little humility here, though. You notice that? Verse 3 again, the second half. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Verse 4, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what God had said to him. Verse 5, Job replies, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So what's the answer to the book of Job? What's the... What's the answer to why Job had all this suffering? We'll come back to that in a second. Look at verse 7 there. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, that's this guy over here, 
Eliphaz, he's really, he's really the one that just went nuts on Job more than the rest. God says to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. What? That's crazy. So God, God gives Job 50 questions. Job's like, you're right, I'm clueless. Then he turns to the other guys, and he's like, you guys are wrong. <laughs> and Job's right. Okay, and then uh, it keeps going. Verse, what was that? Verse 8. Uh, now therefore, he says to Eliphaz and the other two knuckleheads, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer, and not to deal with you according to your folly. He calls the wisdom of the great sages folly, foolishness. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He just said that. That's the second time. Verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So what is, I ask you, the wisdom of the book of Job? What is the point? Well, let me go through first some wrong conclusions. Some things that are not substantiated by this book. First of all, suffering means that there is no God. I know it's very common in our culture today. People will point to the gratuitous suffering in the world and say, oh, there's no God. Well, from the perspective of the book of Job, that's just a wrong conclusion. That's not, that's not on the table whatsoever. Then they said, another one, suffering means that God doesn't care. It's evident from the book of Job that God does care and that he is aware of their conversation and that he does actually rebuke them because he cares. Um, and suffering means God is evil. This is another conclusion that one could draw about suffering in the world, but the book of Job, once again, rejects this conclusion. This would be an incorrect conclusion based on this book here. There are correct conclusions from the book of Job, the first of which is that, you know what? In the end, you're not qualified to judge God. I mean, what do you think, in three dimensions? That's cute. I mean, what did you have for lunch two weeks ago on Tuesday? I mean, maybe some of you know. I have no idea. It's probably Chipotle, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I could ask you a question about a year ago, and you'd be like, well, I think it was like this, but I'm not sure. We are that small, people. We are that small. I mean, you've got 20, 30, 40 years of experience. That's nothing compared to God. That's nothing. Even if you live to 100 years old and everyone said, oh, you're so wise. Oh, you, you've been through so much. You remember World War II and all this other stuff, right? It's nothing. You, you wouldn't even be a teenager compared to God. It's, 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 it's incomparable. We're just not qualified to get up on a high horse and look down on God. There is no place high enough for us to look down on God. He's God! Right? And so, you know, if He's evil, we're all ruined, whether we like it or not. And if He's good, which I believe He is, and, you know, the, the, this is another thing to keep in mind. Job's not the only book in the Bible. There are 65 others that tell us much more about God's character. This is just dealing with this one specific issue. 
It's like a child judging their parents for eating food because the child has a limited palate. And, and the child says to the parent, Ew, that's disgusting. That's what we're doing when we judge God. We're, we're, we're just too small to make such a big statement. And we get in trouble when we think we can do otherwise. And that's why the fear of the Lord, as Jerry shared, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, look at another conclusion. It's complicated. Running the world is immensely difficult. God has it set up to run in a certain way, but there are many people who refuse to live the way that God wants them to live. And what does that result in? Chaos. Contradiction. Suffering. And the, the physical world itself is, is wearing down over time. I mean, there, there are problems with our physical world, certain weather patterns and tectonic plates that are shifting around. You know, our world is falling. The people and the planet, and the animals. So, it's complicated. God does intervene in our lives. We could, we could have a testimony time where people could come up here and share about how God has intervened at different points in their life. But He does not intervene as a slave. He intervenes when He sees fit. Why? Because He's God. He's not your buddy. He's God. He could not exist you. And delete all of our memories of you. I mean, he wouldn't. But, like, he could. That's the kind of being we're talking about here. And that's why I love this one. Through it all, God is there. In the end, he showed up. You know what Job got? Yeah, Job went through unspeakable tragedy. But in the end, you know what Job got? He got to see God. He got to talk to God. in a whirlwind. And when he talked to God, you know what God did? He defended Job. He spoke to those friends and he says, he's right, you're wrong. I bet Job felt pretty good after that. <laughs> after all those chapters of, of, of saying these things. God rebuked Job's accusers and he said Job was right about God and they were wrong. Which is so funny because one of the biggest things Job's doing is Job is saying this uh, simplistic way of thinking about justice is wrong. And so it is. It is wrong. It's also right. Okay? The law of retributive justice is not ironclad. Yes, generally, right? Generally, righteousness leads to prosperity. Generally, wickedness, you know, you lie to people, you cheat them, you treat, you treat them like garbage. What happens? You don't have any friends. Right? I mean, this is kind of like common sense, right? But common sense and, and Proverbs, truisms like this, they are general principles but they are not ironclad. Sometimes life goes in the opposite direction. And the Bible knows that and gives us the book of Job to help us figure that out. And here's the thing, too. What the book of Job teaches us is you cannot do the law of retributive justice in reverse. Okay, So if you see somebody that's having a great life, you can't automatically conclude, oh, they must be, do they must be doing the right thing. They must be righteous. The book of Job rejects that conclusion. So the reverse way of looking at it, or if somebody's life is, is really terrible, you should not say, oh, this person really doesn't have faith. That's to reject the book of Job as well. Uh, and then the last, the last point is, we don't get the answer why. 
I don't know how many of you have actually read through all of the 42 chapters of Job. You get to the end and, and, and you don't get this like nice conclusion where, in a sense, you get a nice conclusion because Job ends up having a nice life. But you never get a conclusion. I'm like, why, God? Why did these things happen? Why didn't you stop these things from happening? He never says that. And that's just like your experience, isn't it? In your experience, you go through suffering, you don't know why. And a lot of times, that's just where it is. We don't know why. I mean, we can guess, like, oh, maybe I did sin, or maybe uh, it was some other person's situation that, that affected me, or maybe this is going to make me a better person, or maybe God can't intervene right here in my life because there's like a butterfly effect, and then somebody in Taiwan is going to have a, a, you know, a short life because I got a good parking spot at the grocery store. I don't know. It's complicated, right? It doesn't, he doesn't tell us the answer why. But one thing's clear from the book of Job is that you should not give up on God. Giving up on God is just like, all right, I'm drowning. He has a rope. Well, he's not giving me the rope right now, so I'm just going to drown. No, you, 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 you stay in it. You stay, you stay in it. And you know what? God did show up to Job. God was there for him. Now, I want to flip the tables on you, just to my conclusion here, and ask you the opposite question. I want to say to you this. What about God's suffering? Have you thought about that? Every time somebody sins, every time somebody goes against what God says is right, it's rebellion against Him, and it bothers Him. Do you know how many times a day that is? you know how many people there are that don't even care at all what God thinks? And many of us who do care still do the things that God says not to do. Every act of rebellion inspires wrath in Him, and yet God suffers through it. He takes it to redeem us Think about this. He didn't wave a wand to redeem us. What did He do? He gave His Son. He gave His Son. You think that felt good? No. He gave His Son for you. So, you know, I'm thankful that the book of Job isn't the only book. I'm, I'm thankful it's not the whole Bible, just the book of Job, right? Because we would get a very limited view of God. We know that God is a lover. We know that God cares enough for us that he, he gave His only begotten Son, that God plans to fix everything in the end. These are all concepts that are not included in this book, but the book of Job is not to be ignored either because it does help us to wrestle with suffering when it comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us your wisdom for the situation in which we find ourselves. We pray that you would show us what wisdom to apply and give us the wisdom to know when to apply it, we pray that those of us who, in this room right now, who are going through suffering, that you would comfort us. Help us to see your presence through it all. And help us to realize that you do care, that it's complicated, but in the end you will make everything wrong with the world right. And we cling to that hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's it for this episode here. If you're interested, check out other podcasts in the same wisdom series. I've already posted podcasts with Jerry Weirwell and Stan Chi, and I've got a couple more left to go. Uh, if you'd like to go deeper and delve into the problem of evil and why does God allow suffering more, I recommend podcast 63, which really considers that, that problem more directly than this did. 
Also, if you would like to come to Revive 2020, this message was from Revive 2019 back in January. Revive 2020 is coming up January 3rd to the 5th, which is uh, which is the first weekend of the new year. It would be great to have you come if you can make it. And uh, if so, check out more information about that at lhim.org. That's Living Hope International Ministries, lhim.org. And we've got info and registration available there. Lastly, just before concluding, I did want to read out this really helpful quote by William Lane Craig from his book, On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. And he writes, Given the dizzying complexity of life, we are simply in no position at all to judge that God has no good reason for permitting some instance of suffering to afflict our lives. Every event that occurs sends a ripple effect through history such that God's reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later, and perhaps in another country. Only an all-knowing God could grasp the complexities of directing a world of free people toward his envisioned goals. Just think of the innumerable, incalculable events involved in arriving at a single historical event, say, the Allied victory at D-Day. We have no idea of what suffering might be involved in order for God to achieve some intended purpose through the freely chosen actions of human persons, nor should we expect to discern God's reasons for permitting suffering. It's hardly surprising that much suffering seems pointless and unnecessary to us, for we are overwhelmed by such complexity. This is not to appeal to mystery, but rather to point to our inherent limitations, which make it impossible for us to say, when confronted with some example of suffering, that God probably has no good reason for permitting it to occur. Unbelievers themselves recognize these limitations in other contexts. Some short-term good might actually lead to untold misery, while some action that looks disastrous in the short term may bring about the greatest good. We don't have a clue. End quote. So that was from William Lane Craig, who I, I just love the fact that he says this is complicated and he's overwhelmed thinking about it because this is one of the smartest men around. He got his PhD in uh, some sort of f- branch of philosophy focusing on time and space and metaphysics. And then he went back to school after he got his PhD and got a second PhD, this time in the German language. He went to Germany and studied the histor- historicity of the resurrection on a grant from the German government. So this guy's got two PhDs, one in uh, a, a very technical field of science and philosophy, and the other in also a very technical field of history. And he's the one that says that he recognizes his inherent limitations that makes it impossible for him to say he, he, he has any kind of a grasp, really, on what God is doing and, or why God allows bad things to happen. And so, you know, as finite human beings, we're just not able to comprehend the complexity of how God makes decisions. Look, if you think of an ant, how, how much smarter are you than an ant? It just... It's hard to even come up with a number, right? <laughs> Ants are pretty dumb. I mean, they're almost like just little programmed robots following the code in their software to forage and get food and build little piles of dirt. We are so much smarter than ants. But here's the thing. However much smarter we are than ants and more valuable and more complex we are than they, by analogy, 
God is more complex than we are than we are to an ant. Do you see what I'm saying? And will we expect an ant to understand our reason, our reasons for this or that? Of course not. Of course not. I'm not saying that all humans are ants here. What I am saying is that God is so far beyond our human ability to reason and to think and to play out scenarios that we shouldn't expect to easily grasp or after great difficulty just be able to figure out, oh yeah, running the world is pretty easy. He just follows this principle A, B, and C and every time it's D as a result. No, that's not how our world works and we're not qualified to judge. So hopefully this episode was helpful in getting you to think about this issue. If you'd like to leave your feedback or or pushback on what I said here, please come on to restitudio.org. You can find episode 295, Job, It's Complicated, and leave a comment there, add your voice to the mix. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.